Thank you, Sean. Good morning, Reliance. Happy Labor Day weekend. Um, before we turn once again to prayer and then considering the passage before us this morning, next week is going to mark our eighth anniversary, our eight-year anniversary as a church. And um, that's pretty remarkable what God has done through us for, for His glory. We're thankful that we have been able to have a ministry here in this, this city. And so next week, historically what we've done, historically if you can say that, eight years, right? Um, we've kind of made it a big deal. Uh, next week, we were going to have Carlton Obi, who's a executive director of Mercy Street in Dallas, Texas. And I just spoke with him yesterday and uh, their family got COVID and uh, he's battling it. And I said, it's all right. They're doing well. He's doing well. He has the lingering impacts of it. And I said, you come up when you're ready and you're good. And so um, we're going to have him come up hopefully here in several more weeks, which means I will be preaching again next week. I hope you look forward to that. Um, uh, but also at this service, what, we're gonna, what we decided to do as well is um, normally we've done baptisms outside that evening. We're going to do it during the service here. Okay. Um, so it's a celebration, and we have a number of baptisms next week that we get to rejoice. In times like this, I might not be the only one, but it is good to see good things. It's a witness to hear good things. And next week, we'll be reminded once again, God is still working. He's redeeming his people for himself. And so I pray that you would join us. Join us that evening. It's going to be a chilly feast evening, so bring your best chili. There, are, it's, there is a running over the last six, seven years of the best chili, and so I hope that you can take them down um, and, and unthrone them. Um, although I, I do like their, their chili. Kim um, has won it a couple of times, so you can, you can bring it, but you're not running for it. No, I know you can uh, I pray you would join us. Um, with that said, this is a good passage, um, and I'm thankful that we can consider it even today. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for the worship and uh, being able to sing. Lord, I admit that uh, I don't know if I was ready to preach this last week, but I do feel that now I am ready. And that is only by your grace. For I am stubborn. I'm a Morris. My family has been, like all families of the world, disobedient towards you. Uh, An obstinate man. One who opposes you. And man, in these seasons, even now, I find that deep within to want to be faithful, but then also recognize the tension We're wanting to walk faithfully before you, to be a light to the nations, this city. And Lord, I know it's by your word that, uh, and by your grace, only found in Jesus Christ, that you can take a disobedient, obstinate man and make him in your image, Christ Jesus. I have nothing to boast of. We have nothing to boast of. And so if there's anything that we can boast in this morning, whether it be in song or listening or responding in worship, wherever you might send us, Lord, I pray that that might be the tune of our heart. 
Christ Jesus, yet not I. It's Christ Jesus that I am what I am. And so, Lord, as we look at this passage, I pray that, that you would make it ring in our ears. For we have indeed experienced grace. In Jesus' name, amen. It was to Israel, God said, Romans 10.21, All the day long, I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. Grace. I don't know if we have any idea what it is. I, and I have, as I was looking over what I've jotted down here and what's in the text, I have found myself even listening to sermons on grace. We throw words around and we think we know what they mean and then yet realize that we don't actually know what they mean. And I find myself, as I come to this passage again, how can one truly understand and appreciate that word if it's been so preached on and taught on? And so acknowledging my limitness or my inability or just humanity and hoping that you could grasp it, I only pray that God will let you grasp it as he intends. And like I said, we throw words around a lot and grace tends to be that one. And we actually, each of us actually know how to use passages from scripture to address this, address this issue. For by grace you have been saved. Grace be with you all, Christ Jesus. If there is one word, no doubt, within this passage that Paul wants us to understand, it's that word. So I want to ask you with no introductions, no hook, I want you to entertain me and ask, answering this question. You don't answer it yet. But I wonder if you would entertain me in asking when I ask the question, what's the difference between Israel and Pharaoh? What's the difference between Israel and Pharaoh? Did God save Israel because they were physically, religiously, and morally better? What's the difference that prompted God's eye upon Israel? No hook, no invitation. I'm just asking you to ask the question, what's the difference? Because if you're like me, I imagine some of you think this is obvious. Of course God would stretch his hand out, wouldn't, excuse me. Of course God wouldn't stretch his hand out towards Pharaoh. Pharaoh was awful. For several generations, he oppressed the Israelites. In fact, he made the Israelites his slaves. He made their lives bitter. He afflicted them. He oppressed them. And he went even as far to eliminate their offspring. Of course, God wouldn't stretch his hand. And we know that Pharaoh was indeed a stubborn man. Exodus 7.14 Pharaoh's heart, as the Lord said to Moses, is stubborn. He refuses to let his people, let the people go. And so surely for the reasons, for this reasons, the Lord crushed Pharaoh. For he was arrogant, he was stubborn, he was oppressive, he was awful. Of course God would not stretch his hand. Clearly we recognize that even as the scriptures teach Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is 
proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. In fact, assuredly he will not be unpunished. What's the difference between Pharaoh and Israel? If you're like me, it's obvious, right? Pharaoh is stubborn. He is, he is one who is disobedient and he has set his own ways against the Lord. Of course, surely for these reasons, the Lord would crush Pharaoh, stretch out his hand to an innocent party, Israel. If that's how you think, and that's how we understand the scriptures, therefore we have no idea what grace is. Because I'm going to show you, there is no difference between Pharaoh and Israel. It didn't take long. Ten plagues. Think about it. Ten plagues of, of God's justice upon Egypt. I've often asked myself in this own season, like, if COVID was one plague, think about it in the last year, what it's done to us as a people. Ten plagues, one after another, after another. Even Egypt's officials said to Pharaoh, please let them go. But Pharaoh was stubborn. Ten plagues crushed by the hand of God. God did not stretch his hand out to Egypt. But he did to Israel. And it was moments after crossing the Red Sea when we saw the power of the mighty hand of God delivering a nation out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. It was moments after this victory of God's salvation, he reveals to the nation of Israel that Israel is just like Pharaoh. He said to Moses in Exodus 32, 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, they are an obstinate people. What does that mean? They set themselves against me. It's not just Pharaoh that does this. The Israelites do this as well. And throughout their, all their ministry, their old time as existence, even in the time of Moses, after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, it was in Deuteronomy 9.6 that he reminds the people, Know then. 9.6, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord, your God, is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stubborn people. What made Pharaoh different than Israel that caused God to stretch his hand out towards Israel and not Pharaoh? If you're like me... You think God is stretching his hand out to Israel because Pharaoh is cruel. That's not grace. Moses, as we understand Israel's history, if you just give me a moment, throughout his time and knowing these people in Israel, man, he was faithful. He writes as he is about to die and he preaches to his own people in Deuteronomy 31 these words. He's not optimistic that these things are going to change with Israel. For I know your rebellion. This is their leader. I know your rebellion. I know your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today. You have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more than after my death. Man, he's, he's really encouraging them. Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing. 
and called the heavens and the earth to witness against them. It's not only him who sees this in his own people. Creation himself itself could testify that they are an obstinate people. For I know, verse 29, that after my death, you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. It was in the days of Moses, repeatedly, over and over again, it was the nation of Israel which proved to be disobedient and obstinate. The same thing that Pharaoh did ten plagues in a row. Why is it that one gets the salvation of God and the other one gets the wrath of God? What marks the difference between the two? Pharaoh was rebellious. Yes, Pharaoh was stubborn. Yes, Pharaoh was arrogant. But so was Israel. It proved even more so historically being a people of rebellion, arrogance, and obstinance towards the Lord. And indeed, even after Moses said these prophetic words, at his death, after Joshua took over the promised land and after Joshua died in the days of the judges, this is exactly what we see. Judges 2, 11 through 12. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the gods of their father, who had, been, had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Did the Lord respond to the nation of Israel like he did at Pharaoh in the days of the judges? Did he crush them with his wrath? Indeed he did discipline them. But when they cried out for repentance he pitied it. And he showed compassion. And so Judges 2, 8, 19, 18 and 19, you see this re- reality take forth or take place. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord, was the, ju- the Lord was with this judge of the judges and delivered them from the land of their enemies all the days of the judges. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. Verse 19. But it came about when the judge died, that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. And they did abandon their practices, did not, excuse me, they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. God was gracious to the, to the people in Moses' day. But yet after Joshua's day, the people of Judges forsook the Lord, worshipped other gods, Baal, and when they were oppressed by those around them, they would cry out to the Lord and God would deliver them, provide them a judge. And when that judge died, they turned back and became more corrupt than they ever were. Why is it that God was gracious to Israel and not Pharaoh? What motivated God to extend his hand of mercy to them and not Pharaoh? 
Because if you know the people of Israel, they have proven historically to be a stubborn, disobedient, and obstinate people. This is what Paul says in Romans 10, 21. As for Israel, the Lord has said all the day long, historical relationship between me and them has been, I have stretched out my hand. My hand of mercy and my hand of grace to a disobedient and obstinate people. And you know the story of the judges. At the end of the book of Judges, when the judges are done away with, every man did what was right in their own eyes and they would not turn their eyes to Yahweh. And yet, still even then, as they become increasingly more rebellious and more obstinate towards God's ways and the Lord himself, you still see the hand of God being stretched out to them. Tell me, as you think through this, as we get into Romans chapter 11, what marks them different than Pharaoh? If you know God and you know the mind of God, if you were to set the scales... Israel has indeed been more historically rebellious than even Pharaoh. And yet it was in the days after the, king, the days of the judges, when Samuel was their judge, and when he was growing old, the people of the nation said, in 1 Samuel 8, 5, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like the other nations, like all the nations Opposing God himself, grieving Samuel, he goes to the Lord. In 1 Samuel 8, 7, the Lord responds to him, listen to the voice of the people. In regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The days of the kings, as you know, Israel continues to be an obstinate, disobedient, stubborn people. There were moments, King David, moments or portions in King Samuel's life where you have a nation walking in obedience to the Lord, but they're short-lived. In those days, why didn't God strike the kings of Israel like he did Pharaoh? They were stubborn. They were arrogant. They were oppressive. Yet what does he do instead? He stretches his hand of mercy out once again. And he sends to them prophets. So he raises up Ezekiel. And he says, hey, this is Jacob's paraphrase, but hey, I'm sending you to Israel. But so that you might know, I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and an obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord. Jeremiah, he sent in the same ministry, raised up in 7, 24 through 26. And he says, this is what's going to happen. They, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in their stubbornness of their evil heart and went backwards and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear. But stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. The report of Israel historically is they've been worse and worse with every generation. Why is it that God extends his hand to Israel and not Pharaoh? 
You don't know the answer. You don't know what grace is yet. It was Isaiah who was sent. And he preached to a people who would not respond. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. For the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Hosea, Israel is stubborn. Like a stubborn heifer. Can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? These are not compliments. I am thankful that is not my ministry yet. (laughs) Could you imagine? Isaiah, here's your ministry. Preaching to a stubborn people. Nehemiah. Recounting Israel's history. He comes to this conclusion as he teaches the people. Who have led been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. He says to them as they're rebuilding Jerusalem. Nevertheless. Lord, your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are gracious and compassionate and a compassionate God. Historically, as Paul reminds us, God has all the day long stretched out his hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. What's the difference between Pharaoh and Israel? It doesn't stop there at the days of the kings or in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. For when the Messiah came, just as John declares in John 1.11, he came to his own. His own people. They knew the promises. They knew the prophecies of the prophets. And when he appeared, those who were his own did not receive him. His ministry was powerful. Still to this day, the ministry of Christ, the appointed king, has been proclaimed throughout the whole world. Yet in that day, they did not repent or receive him as king. Proving their continuation of being a stubborn, disobedient, obstinate people. For when God was there before them, they showed their obstinate nature rejecting him. Why? Like, why would God put up with that? Jesus, at the conclusion of his ministry, he knows that he's about to go on the cross, and he sits on the Mount of Olives, and he looks over Jerusalem, his people who he has preserved by his merciful hand, declares in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and the stones, those who are sent to her, and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. What's the difference between Pharaoh and Israel? For if we read our Bibles, we know clearly it's Israel who shouldn't be dealt such a hand. And if you think you're outside that nature, you don't understand the book of Romans. Man, when Jesus is standing before Pilate, Jesus, after all those years, three years teaching wisdom, real wisdom, 
demonstrating real authority. Demonstrating that you can rule without a sword. He makes the smartest men marvel. He merely speaks and demons flee. He says, get up and they get up. He shows his authority to even heal the heart of a sinful harlot. They see it. They marvel at it. And then they remain stubbornly set against such one. I stretched my hand out to them all the day long. And so Pilate in John 19.12, as a result of this, Pilate made effort to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. And with great horror and shock, we read in John 19.14-16 as the scene unfolds. Now it was in that day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Pilate, Behold your king, true. So they cried out with their stubborn, disobedient, obstinate hearts. Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And just like the people in the days of Samuel, they saw God standing before them. They say, we have no king but Caesar. They wanted to be just like all other human beings, like the nations. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. God came to his own. He has historically stretched his hands out to a disobedient and obstinate people all the day long. And after all this patience, they prove their stubbornness. How would, if you were God, respond to such disobedient, obstinate nature? You know how you respond to it in your families. Get wronged once, that's it. God, historically, let him kill him. But then when he resurrects in three days, where does the gospel go first? This is grace. This is grace. Acts 3.26, for you first. (laughs) Could you imagine? Like, I don't get the word grace. You first. God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways after the resurrection. It was foreseen by God To extend his hand once again. To whom? The Jew. So now we know. Why in Romans 6. Or 1 chapter 1 verse 16. Paul writes. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone. Who believes. To the Jew first. 
and then to the Gentile. Romans 10, 21. As for Israel, all the day long, I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. What's the difference between Pharaoh and Israel? The answer, nothing. But why is it that one receives mercy and the other wrath? Grace. It's the only thing that separates the two. For they are both the same. And Israel was the recipient historically of God's continued grace. Not one nation will stand before the Lord and say, you have not been gracious. For we have seen it with the nation of Israel. But has God, as the gospel has gone forth into the nations, we see very few Jews still receiving Christ. Is it now then that God has rejected his people? Point two. Look at 11.1. I say then, even though they've been historically obstinate and disobedient, has God not rejected his people? Has he? It's this like paraphrase of saying, are you kidding me? No way. And he affirms that God continues to be gracious, extending his hand to those in Israel because Paul is what? An Israelite. A Jew. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God promised he would save his people. But Paul has had to remind the nation of Israel, just because you're of Israel doesn't mean you're saved. Doesn't mean that you are somehow in the favor of God, for not all Israel is Israel. His word is specific and goes to whom he has applied it. To whom he desires to give grace. As he has already said in Romans 9.6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel. Who are descended from Israel. For those who will receive grace. God has extended his grace to a remnant in Israel. For not all are Israel. Continue with me and look at verse 2 and 3. God has not rejected his people. Imagine that. The repetitious nature of the obstinate heart towards God. God continues to be gracious to them. But only to those within. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He's going to save those whom he intended to save within Israel. But it's not all Israel. It's Israel within Israel. Or do you not know what the scriptures say in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. Elijah knew this. He experienced it personally. What it was like to preach the truths of God in the nation of Israel who were set against it. And when he did it, he felt alone. Even after a victory, he writes these words, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They are, have turned down your altars, and I am alone left. 
and they are seeking for my life. Yet in those days, God revealed, even to Elijah, you're not it. My word doesn't fail. When I save, I'm going to save whom I'm going to save. It, has, it will reach its end and its intent and its design. In which he says, but what is, what is the divine response to Elijah? In verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even historically, as Israel showed repetitiously their bent heart against the Lord, God historically preserved for himself a remnant. Giving grace to a few. And we see this in the days of Elijah. Look at verse 5. And still to this day, in the same way then, now there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Just because you are Israel doesn't mean that you're in. Not all Israel is Israel. But the word of God is that which when he says he will save, he will save. There is a remnant within Israel that he has chosen to save. And Paul is a recipient of that grace. For he knows there is nothing different between Pharaoh and Israel. If there is going to be salvation, it has to be on the basis not of historical lineage or moral privilege, but rather by the grace of God. And the only means by which Paul has been saved is because of the grace of God. Because if you know Paul, up before he found Christ, he lives bent against the Lord. Ravaging those who have aligned with Christ. And then it came in a moment where the grace of God changed the heart of Paul. In which he received the grace of God. And he counts himself as God's appointed grace as a result of his choice and not Paul's. Has God rejected his people? No. For it has all historically been that he would save a remnant within Israel. And still to this day, even though God was incredibly patient and gracious towards historically the nation of Israel, he continues to save a remnant within But there's a point here. Look at verse 6. Where Paul lands the plane. And hopes that we might understand. What grace is. By grace he says this. But if it is by grace. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise grace is no longer grace. You've been with us, and I know we've been going through the letter of Romans for quite some time now. The aim has not been to race through it, but it has been to do faithful, to walk through it faithfully. But the reality is, is that Israel has based their life on thinking that they can get in right favor with God through their merit. And Paul lands the plane here. No, they're just like Pharaoh. The only difference is they received grace. For if you add works into the mix, therefore then you do not have grace. 
The only reason why Pharaoh was dealt with wrath and Israel, a portion of Israel within, received grace was because not by works, but by grace. Why are you saved? Why do you hope in Christ? See, we're going to step back and try to get practical. You're Pharaoh. You're Israel. You're just like the rest of all other humanity. And if it wasn't for grace, you're out. You are one like me who is stubborn and obstinate. I feel it within. But it wasn't, it wasn't by the mark of God's grace I wouldn't be what I am. If there's anything good in me, Paul writes, I mean, I quoted it. Some of this, I'm going to go a little off. But like, grace, when you realize what it is, it is then you have nothing to boast about. You're Pharaoh, you're Israel. Ephesians 2, 4, 9. He repetitiously throws the word of grace in here so that you might know who you are. And that the church might realize who they are. So that he writes in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. God being rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. When we were disobedient and stubborn and set against God. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Because he would keep going in that stubborn direction against God. But God showed up and saved your wicked heart. But what has he done in verse 6? And he's raised us up with him. He has seated us with him. How? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By grace. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no man. No man. No one. No woman. No child. No 90 year old individual may boast. Like I don't know if we. I don't know what else to say on that. Because I go into relationships based on merit. Like we interact with each other based on merit. I was reading with the staff this book, and I'm going to paraphrase this wrong, but the author was saying the reason why the church is confusing is if we were, this is Jacob paraphrase, don't quote me on it, but naturally we would be all enemies of one another. But then we come together and we sing. What unites us together in Christ is this grace. For we know if it wasn't for grace, we would have very little dealings with one another. 
And we know where God's grace has been given, sometimes we're having a hard time dealing with the grace where it's been dealing. Right? If you're like me, I grew up in a great, a wonderful gospel living home. But that hasn't been the privilege of everyone, has it? Some of us have just realized the grace of God and we are trouble. And we still have this figuring out how to be obedient to Christ. And sometimes we just write people off where grace has been generously been given. There was a moment when we were worshiping outside. There was an individual that was coming to Reliance and had a troubled life, no doubt. Difficult, no doubt. Children, like, I watched them and I was thinking, they can't sit through a service. And yet you guys let those kids run around. Hang from the tree. Run across the front when communion was being offered. Didn't make an issue of it. Why? Because you know God's been gracious to you and you should be gracious to others. And only by the grace of God he can change children's hearts and a single father. Greg said it and we've said it often in this day of COVID. We talk about it constantly. Masks. What does it look like to honor the governor? We've talked about vaccines. Man, if there's anyone that has lost more sleep over this issue, my wife probably can testify of it. It's been me. When we started worshiping back indoors a year ago, we hadn't come up with a policy on this thing. You guys were indeed gracious with us. Because it took a while to figure out what we could find ourselves compromised. And then last week, I come up, say our current position. You dealt with it graciously. I hope you know, like, part of me as, I, as the elders talk, we want to be faithful. Because we have experienced grace and we know that recognize that we want to be wise. And that's why when we said these things we said, like, if we ever come into the conviction where we need to do these things, we'll do it. But unlike in other places of the world, I'm off my topic. But last week, I was so honored to watch the people who took communion place their masks on and hand it out to a people that with a mixed, mixed group of opinions. Because I think this is the heart of it, is that we who are people, you will not experience that compassion and grace towards anyone else in the world. Like that's what marked the early church as phenomenally weird. That they were Jews, a portion of Jews that were worshiping with Gentiles and were compassionate towards one another. But that compassion was only marked by the reality of knowing the grace within Because you know of this about God. If he can be gracious to us, he can also be the vehicle or the vessel who makes one's heart even harder. 
Verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. They received grace because God called them. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, not an ear or and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. They can't see. What would motivate you and I to become prideful and not compassionate? They cannot respond to the gospel because their hearts have been hardened. And then it's in that reality we ought to admit we have experienced the opposite. The grace of God. And yet we find the temptation to not be gracious with one another. And so I'm thankful and I pray that the grace that we have will be the grace that we can express, not because we have somehow acquired it through merit, because we're the stubborn person, right? We're the disobedient. We're the, that's who we are. And yet God has been gracious to us. Where do I want to go next year, eight, or next week, like eight years? I, I, I'm thinking through this passage and then being convicted by its reality. Like, can we continue to be and work towards being a gracious people towards one another as a result of the grace given to us? Whether it be at the top, whether it's pastoral leadership, or whether it be in the membership level, or those who are regular attenders, or whether those who are guests, will we be marked by this grace towards one another, only realized by what Christ has given us? Because if it's not by grace, verse 6, it is no longer on the basis of works, and we're following into the line of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. There was a temptation. Maybe this is why I should write these things out, but there was a temptation when I wrote what I, or what I said last week is to go to Romans 13 and preach on, like, how do we think through this when it says every person is to be in subjection to the government authorities? that I came to the conviction that you are gracious and you'll wait for me to get there. Because that's what we are as a people. Because you know, when we go back out in the world, we find ourselves living in the midst of a world that is stubborn. We ourselves are tempted by it. But we must be a people that can talk about the grace of God, which we've experienced graciously to everyone. And be marked by this reality, that it wasn't by grace, there's no difference between us and Pharaoh or the nation of Israel. It is only by grace that we have anything good to offer the world. For if it wasn't because of Christ, we wouldn't be who we are.
and being gracious with one another as we go through this journey together. So I look forward eight years, if God would be gracious towards us, to give this ministry another hundred years far past us. But I pray that it would be marked on the basis by recognizing the grace that has been given us that we can extend it to every single one of us, whether we're rich or poor, whatever color we might be, when God calls, he saves, and when he saves, we're gracious towards one another. And we sit around the table, we sit in fellowship, rejoicing in what God has done for us because he could have done what he has done to Israel now and given them a heart which cannot see. And praise God, he's been gracious to us. Paul's going to go on in chapter 11. He's not done with Israel. God is not done with Israel. But for the time being, this is how God has responded. Let's pray. Lord, you have said in your word, you will have mercy on whom you desire and compassion on whom you desire. You will harden who you desire. And we're a people marked by a relationship with Christ, enter into a new kingdom, which is Christ. And Lord, I pray as we walk through the seasons ahead of us, Lord, I pray that we would walk humbly, graciously, and we know, like, it was ten plagues for Pharaoh. How many will you give our nation or the world? Lord, let us be steadfast in hope in Christ. May our love for one another and unity in Christ prevail. May our hope for what's set ahead. Lord, our world does fear death. And the hope of the gospel is, that's not it. Christ has overcome the grave. And given us hope. And only in Christ will that be realized. And I pray if there is anyone here. Who has not realized that they are a stubborn individual. They have lived their lives against you. That you would bring them to repentance. That your spirit would empower them to recognize. That you have been merciful to them in Christ. That Christ has died for their sins. And that it is your delight that they might be included in the family of God. That they would say. Lord Jesus, I am sorry that I have used my life in rebellion against you. And Lord, I pray that I ask that they would submit to your lordship and enjoy the mercy of God that you have made available to them by the means of faith and by the means of grace. And Lord, as we conclude our time together in worship, Lord, I pray that we'd walk in that grace to wherever you might have sent us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?